Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The heat is on for outdoor wood-burning boilers. In Maine, they've ignited a firestorm of controversy. I mean, I grew up in Maine. We're wood-burning people. This is what I was trying to tell neighbors, and it just fell on deaf ears. I'm all for emissions control. You know, what comes out of that stack needs to be filtered. Going up in smoke, neighborly relations over a natural, cost-effective way to heat a home. Also, the one that got away, a fish called king. If you look at our salmon species as a General Motors, king salmon is really the Cadillac of the salmon species. And just as threatened as king salmon is under siege on the Pacific coast, and scientists aren't sure why. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. Look at that! Look what we got! At the famous Pike Place Market in Seattle, you can get fish in all shapes, colors, sizes, and stripes. There's one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, if you count the blue crabs. And ruling over all is the deep orange king salmon, or so-called Chinook. But this year, Chinook from California's Sacramento River are going to be scarce. They're mysteriously disappearing. Just a fraction of the adult salmon returned to spawn in the Sacramento River. And it's not just the adults. At one hatchery, just four of 200 young fish released survived the 335-mile journey to the Golden Gate Bridge. The salmon season is supposed to start on May 1st, but the Pacific Coast Fisheries Management Council is considering closing it all together. Zeke Grader is the executive director of the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Association. Mr. Grader, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. What do you think is devastating the Chinook salmon fishery? Well, it's a combination of factors. We did have a uh, decline in productivity in the ocean in 2005-2006, but I think a bigger impact has been the excessive water exports from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta system, where 90% of the salmon that are harvested offshore California migrate through and uses nursery habitat. So if a ban is put in place, fishermen won't be able to catch salmon from northern Oregon to the Mexican border? Well, certainly we're expecting to see a ban or a near closure off of both Oregon and California, and Washington will certainly be restricted. Well, how are the fishermen that you represent responding to this idea? Well, they're not happy with it, obviously, but I think the numbers are there and they're not really disputing the numbers. They're really looking at this from the standpoint of figuring out how they're going to be able to survive this year and and perhaps next year with no fishing. And second, I think, looking at what can be done now to affect some changes in the way we um, uh, manage the salmon's habitat and the water flows that that affect them in such a way that we're not going to be looking at these similar situations again. So how much money are we talking here if they have to shut down the fishery on May 1st? 
Well, the figures vary widely. Uh, I've heard figures from the recreational fishery of, of billions of dollars. I, I don't know. It depends how we calculate. I think certainly one of the more conservative figures came from the New York Times at $150 million. I suspect that's probably about right. What is this going to mean for, well, for me, for a person who loves eating salmon? Well, for most of the country, it won't make that big a difference because most of their uh, wild salmon will be coming out of Alaska, and Alaska is expecting to have a fairly good season again this year, and that's certainly what we'd encourage people to do. The bigger impact is really along the, the West Coast where people have are used to being able to have their own locally caught wild salmon. And of course, that is not going to be available this year and probably next. Uh, we are expecting to be able to open again in 2010 and see fish back on the markets at that point. But it just means that there's that much less fresh salmon on the markets. And moreover, the uh, California has traditionally been a big uh, supplier of the Chinook salmon, which are regarded, if you look at our salmon species as a General Motors, King salmon is really the Cadillac of the salmon species. You sound optimistic. We've seen this uh, salmon fishery crash before, and it's made a comeback. So you think it's going to come back again? Well, it can come back and it should come back, I think, if we do the right things. And I think the critical thing now is going to be fixing the Bay and Delta, and that means basically curtailing any further water exports from that system, reducing them. And for California, it means doing something that we should have been doing 30 years ago, which is decentralizing our water supplies and diversifying them. Mr. Grader, thank you very much. Thank you. Zeke Grader is the executive director of the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Association. I got a fish in my dish, and I'm feeling fine. I got a fish in my dish, and I know it's mine. April 2nd will mark one year since a landmark Supreme Court decision on global warming. In the case Massachusetts versus EPA, the court told the Environmental Protection Agency that the greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide, is a pollutant that can be regulated under the Clean Air Act. But nearly a year later, the Bush administration has done little to respond. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports some critics are charging the White House is deliberately running out the clock on the court's climate ruling. Each time EPA Administrator Stephen Johnson testifies before Congress on climate change, and that's a lot lately, he stresses his belief that global warming is real. Let me begin by saying I agree that climate change is a global challenge. And Johnson might feel a bit of warming just beneath him. He's definitely in the hot seat. You're the fireman and the planet's on fire right now. And you don't pick up a hose. You don't pick up a water bucket. You do nothing. Your administration has done nothing about this before the Supreme Court decision or after the Supreme Court decision. What has critics like Washington Democratic Representative Jay Inslee so upset is Johnson's response to last year's Supreme Court case, Massachusetts versus EPA. In their 5-4 decision, the justices rejected Johnson's argument that he lacks authority to regulate carbon dioxide. That was last April. Since then, the Bush administration has missed its self-imposed deadlines to respond to the ruling. And a regulation on CO2 now seems unlikely before the end of the president's term. Last May, President Bush told the EPA to write a regulation to control greenhouse gases from cars and trucks. 
This is a complicated legal and technical matter. It's going to take time to fully resolve. Yet it is important to move forward. So I have directed members of my administration to complete the process by the end of 2008. In a press briefing last June, Johnson said he would publish a draft rule for reducing greenhouse gases within six months. My goal uh, is to have that proposal out by the end of this year. That's 2007. 2007 ended with no proposed regulation. This month, Johnson told Congress he could not even predict when he would make the first decision along that regulatory path, what's called an endangerment ruling. The Clean Air Act instructs the EPA administrator to say whether a pollutant might reasonably endanger public health or welfare. Johnson says he needs to think about it. Because a, a decision on one part of the Clean Air Act could have lasting consequences and unforeseen economic consequences. So that means any facility that would it emit any carbon dioxide would then trigger all of the regulatory framework of the Clean Air Act. Johnson also says Congress's recent decision to increase auto fuel efficiency requires his agency to revisit its approach to regulating tailpipe emissions. His argument closely mirrors that made by the conservative think tank the Heritage Foundation. Heritage Energy Analyst Ben Lieberman says EPA is wise to avoid what he calls a regulatory Pandora's box. Once it's established under the Clean Air Act that these emissions are pollutants that endanger public health, then they would probably have to be regulated from a number of other sources, small businesses, even farms, in ways that heretofore were only uh, done to very large industrial facilities. So your message is getting through? I would hope so. I don't know uh, where it came from, but um, it does seem as though the the pitfalls of uh, regulating CO2 for motor vehicles in this way have been reflected by the administrator in his recent testimony. Attorneys who sued the EPA say that's not the way it's supposed to work. Georgetown law professor Lisa Heinzerling wrote the legal briefs that won in the Supreme Court. She says the court called for Johnson to make his decision about greenhouse gases based on the law and the science. It's not about the policies they might be afraid of. It's not about their preferred approach to regulation. It's not about not liking the Clean Air Act. It's about the science. And that was what we fought in Massachusetts versus EPA. And so I was really shocked to hear Mr. Johnson use exactly the same kind of reasoning to justify what he's not doing now. Heinzerling says another decision by Johnson late last year shows he does recognize the dangers from greenhouse gases. Ironically, when Johnson denied California permission to regulate CO2 from tailpipes, he did so by pointing out that the entire country could suffer things like drought, wildfires, and sea level rise. What they said is rather odd, but what they said is uh, climate change is going to be so bad everywhere that California isn't different enough to justify having its own program. Now, of course, EPA says, no, that wasn't an endangerment finding formally. That was just our decision here. But it would be like saying, oh, uh, the, you know, the, the world is, is round. And then in the next decision, say, no, sorry, in this context, it's flat. EPA records also indicate that about the time that Johnson rejected California's request, he and EPA staff also concluded that greenhouse gases endanger public welfare. California Democratic Representative Henry Waxman says documents show EPA even drafted regulation calling for higher fuel efficiency for cars and trucks. In early December, he sent his endangerment finding to the White House, and they've been sitting on it ever since. 
Waxman hopes his committee's investigation will spur EPA to act. But with less than a year left in the Bush administration, it seems unlikely they will have time for the public hearings and other work that goes into crafting a regulation. We may, as a practical matter, have to wait this administration out, but the EPA director is obligated under the law uh, to act on his own judgment, and uh, Steve Johnson uh, is, is going to have to come to the conclusion what his judgment really is, what he sent to the White House as his judgment, or what the White House is going to tell him his judgment should be. California Congressman Henry Waxman. Jeff, one quick question before you go. Okay. This landmark decision, has it achieved anything? Mm. Well, you know, I asked that of uh, the people who who brought the suit and and won it. And clearly they are frustrated that despite winning in the high court, they don't have a whole lot to show for it just yet. But they do point to other indirect effects that the ruling is having. Kansas, uh, for example, is one of the states fighting against uh, proposed new coal-fired power plants. And Kansas's governor has cited this Supreme Court decision and all of the uncertainty that it brings about uh, how to deal with CO2 emissions as one of the reasons to deny permits for coal-fired power. So it's had a legal impact. But it's too soon to say when or even if that's going to translate into any real reductions in greenhouse gases. Uh, the wheels of justice do grind slowly, Jeff. Indeed. Thanks. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Coming up, outdoor wood boilers, a burning issue sets neighbor against neighbor. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The state of Maine claims to be the birthplace of America's timber industry and fabled lumberjack Paul Bunyan. Let me tell you about the biggest lumberjack of all. He was 3,000 pounds and 100 feet tall. Slept on a king-size bed big as a shopping mall. Everyone agreed he was a mighty big man. In Bangor, you find what may be the world's largest statue of the mythic woodsman. In Maine, it's not just a tall tale. 90% of the pine tree state is forested. It's the highest percentage in the nation. The state seal and flag both feature a white pine. The roots of forestry run deep in the hearts and minds of Mainers. It's tradition. It's part of our culture. Kathy Durgan Layton is town manager of Bodenham, Maine. Wood is a natural resource here. We have plenty of it. People make their living uh, logging. It's just a way of life here. Uh, I think that if you went on down any country road in Maine, you will see a wood pile. There are half a dozen wood piles behind Roland Dorina Morin's home in Brunswick, Maine. The Morins have 75 acres of forest. Roland built their home with lumber from the trees. Out back, along the fence line, are neatly stacked cords of dry split wood, mostly pine and a little hardwood. Boy, what a nice day, huh? Yeah, beautiful day. It's midwinter. The air is crisp, the sky blue, and the white pines soar in the Morins' backyard. It's quintessential New England. Outside, it's an unseasonably warm 45 degrees. Inside the Morin home, it's a toasty 75. Thanks to the outdoor wood boiler Roland installed about 50 feet behind their house. It's in a metal shed with a 12-foot-high smokestack poking out of the top. The wood boiler looks a little like an outhouse. You want to see the inside? Sure. Just stand back a little bit. You might be smoke coming out. 
Outdoor wood boilers are relatively new devices. They've been around about a dozen years. Roland Morin's wood boiler firebox is surrounded by a metal water jacket. The burning wood heats the water, which is piped underground into his home. And this fire, this little firebox here, heats your entire house? Oh, yeah, but it could heat two or three that size. It doesn't take that much heat to heat the house. So on a day like this, will you be burning much wood? Or? No, no, it doesn't burn much wood, especially warm as it is, no, hardly at all. In the 1960s, the Morins were paying 13 cents a gallon for fuel oil. But a few years ago, after the textile mill in town shut down, Roland lost his job and he and Dorina decided to replace their old oil furnace with an outdoor wood boiler. We like it very, very much. Dorina Morin says they like their wood boiler so much, two of their sons, who live just down the road, also bought them. This is all outside, and the heat is very steady. We don't worry about any heat, and it also heats our hot water. Because the boiler is outside, there's no wood mess inside the Morin house. And Roland has made a few special modifications to the wood boiler, so it burns clean. When it's idling properly, there's, there's hardly any smoke whatsoever. Roland Morin's sense of humor is as dry as the logs he throws onto his wood boiler. The sign over his tool shop reads, Smoky Hollow. Because, as he's learned, where there's smoke from an outdoor wood boiler, often there's a burning controversy. This boiler here is known as the dirtiest boiler in Maine. Yeah, so do you yeah. earn the reputation? Do you deserve oh, yeah. the reputation? <laughs> no. No, I don't deserve it. It was choking, pungent, acrid odors. Jeff Welt lives 500 feet down the road and downwind from the Warren home in their outdoor wood boiler. So we were smelling pretty heavy fumes. I mean, it would wake us up at night. We'd have headaches. It'd be nausea. So we can't keep our windows open. We, we do a lot of things traditionally, like hang our clothes out to dry. We don't like to use a dryer. Stop doing that. We have a big garden back here, and we were really concerned last year about whether or not we should be eating food out of the garden. We never smell the smoke. I can even open our bedroom window, which is not far from the wood boiler. Dorina Morin doesn't understand her neighbor Jeff Welt's problem. And I also, in the spring and the fall, I hang out my clothes. And I take them in. They don't smell smoke. Good fences may make good neighbors, but when it comes to wood smoke from outdoor boilers, Jeff Welt found fences aren't much help. And then my neighbors started calling, and neighbors who live up and down the street, and they pass here on the way to work, or they jog by or something, and they're saying, it's gross. Again, Roland Warren. They complain so much, every complaint brings somebody else to say that the furnace is bad. People are not allowed to dump poison waste on my property. They're not allowed to... Um, poison the water that we drink, but meanwhile they're contaminating and poisoning the air that we breathe. That shouldn't be allowed. But in most places, wood boilers are allowed, and their number is growing dramatically nationwide. We saw an exponential growth as oil prices began to rise. Lisa Rector is a senior policy analyst with Nescom, the Northeast States for Coordinated Air Use Management, which represents air quality agencies in six states. Just three years ago, Rector says there were about 150,000 outdoor wood boilers in the United States. Today, there are more than a quarter of a million, and she predicts the number will soon double. 
Uh, we estimated that if left unchecked and sales trends continued, there'd be half a million in place by 2010. The reason wood boilers are so popular these days is simple. Let's look at the big picture, okay? It's money, says Maine Representative Doug Thomas. His district is one of the poorest in the state, and wood boilers are popular there. A lot of people need to replace foreign oil. They cannot afford to buy oil to heat their homes. 80% of the homes in Maine are heated by oil. And, and $3.29 a gallon, on the incomes that we have here with the cold winters that we have, people can't afford it. They've got to find alternatives. And in Maine, the natural alternative to skyrocketing oil prices is wood. Wood is plentiful, it's renewable, and if you replace down trees with new ones, it's carbon neutral. But burning wood can also be deadly. A lot of people think of wood smoke as that smell of Christmas, but in general, wood smoke is actually a, a fairly toxic substance. Lisa Rector of Nescom says wood boilers are by far the dirtiest way to heat a home. Well, one outdoor wood boiler, the emissions, the PM emissions, the particulate matter emissions from one of these units is equivalent to 205 oil furnaces and three to 8,000 natural gas-fired furnaces, or it's equivalent to about 50 idling diesel trucks. So it's like having a truck stop in your backyard. Rector says particularly troubling are the fine microscopic particles in smoke, specks so small they can lodge deep in your lungs. Those particles, even if your doors are closed, your windows are closed, they'll still find your way into the house. Those particles cause cardiopulmonary issues, asthma. They can especially be of risk to sensitive populations such as children, the elderly, those with asthma. So... Wood smoke is not a benign substance. It is actually the largest sources of fine particles in North America today. Fine particulates in the air kill 60,000 Americans a year, more than die in auto accidents. And besides fine particulates, there are other toxic pollutants in wood smoke and creosote, which builds up in smokestacks. Volatile organic compounds, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, and dioxins, some known carcinogens. Armed with this information, Jeff Welt in Brunswick, Maine, who lives near a wood boiler, decided to take action. Twenty of my neighbors signed a petition that we sent to the state saying it's adversely affecting enjoyment of the neighborhood. You know, do something about it. But there was nothing the state of Maine could do. Back in 2006, when Welt complained to state officials, there were no laws regulating outdoor wood boilers, not federal, state, or local. Wood boilers pit neighbor against neighbor and town against town. As the number of wood boilers increased, so did complaints. Lisa Rector of Nescom fielded many of them. In many cases, and, and I've heard of them personally, people have called me looking for help. They've gone to their local town officials, their state officials, and there really is no regulatory avenue to address these. Jeff Welt convinced officials in Brunswick, Maine, to pass an ordinance limiting wood boilers. New ones were banned in Brunswick, but old ones were allowed to remain, their use restricted to winter. A few other towns in Maine also approved ordinances restricting wood boilers, but most didn't. And Lisa Rector says people in those places affected by wood boiler smoke had little recourse. So they are required to either live with the situation, move, or bring a lawsuit and try and address it through private party nuisance lawsuits. And I said, I'm not suing my neighbor. You know, I'm not going to do that. In fact, Beth Thomas of Bodenham, Maine, wound up doing precisely that. She sued her neighbor over an outdoor wood boiler. Thomas, her husband, and two small kids lived on the outskirts of town. It's just north of Brunswick, which had restricted wood boilers, but Bodenham still allowed them. 
The Thomas family lived downwind from a commercial laundry that used an outdoor wood boiler 24-7. I would be out in the garden getting these headaches, intense headaches. It'd be, it would get hard to breathe, and if it were really bad and the creosote-based smoke was coming into the house itself, which happened frequently, I would just put the kids in the car and go. So what did you do? What did I do? I went to, I called everybody I could find that I knew who might have some control or some information about this. And uh, from the air toxics to the air bureau to the, everybody. And they, the only thing people could say was that you can, there's a nuisance law, you can sue them. Or you can move. That was the other thing. You can move. Thomas's lawsuit went nowhere, so she tried to get Bodenham to regulate the boilers. At town meeting, the debate was intense. Town manager Kathy Durgan Layton says it was about the most controversial issue in Bodenham history. It really divided people. It became quite a divisive issue. It was clear that the citizens of this town did not want to enact an ordinance that would limit or prohibit the use of outdoor wood boilers. And why is that? I think it was a statement of their rights to burn wood. And we're not after wood burning rights. That's silly. Again, Beth Thomas. I mean, I grew up in Maine. We're wood burning people. This is what I was trying to tell neighbors, and it just fell on deaf ears. I'm all for emissions control. You know, what comes out of that stack needs to be filtered. When Bodenham residents voted to keep wood boilers unregulated, Thomas moved to Hollowell, Maine, a town that banned them. Hollowell is just south of the capital, Augusta. There, Beth Thomas filed a complaint with officials demanding something be done on the state level to replace the patchwork of local ordinances. State lawmakers were reluctant to take up the issue. I couldn't believe that burning wood could possibly be a health threat. State Representative Seth Barry became an unlikely champion of state limits on outdoor wood boilers. His father has one at his home. But one whiff of a poorly run wood boiler was all Barry needed to change his mind. If you you walk through a cloud of creosote smoke, you know it and your friends know it for the rest of the week (laughs) because you, you can't wash it out of your hair. Barry became a man with a mission. His colleagues in the Maine legislature began calling the freshman lawmaker Boiler Boy. Barry held hearings, angry, contentious meetings that drew huge crowds. These folks had been told that we were trying to take away their wood boilers, and so they were given stickers, uh, bright uh, fluorescent stickers saying, don't take away my right to burn wood. And they lined the halls of the legislature, and by the end of the hearing, once the technical information came out, once the personal stories of folks who lived next to certain problematic wood boilers came out, many people who had come that day to wear those stickers were taking the stickers off. Barry's emergency bill, phasing in limits on emissions and where wood boilers can be installed, was passed overwhelmingly by Maine's legislature. And now Maine joins Connecticut and Vermont with laws regulating outdoor wood boilers. Ohio and other states are considering similar measures, and years ago, Washington state banned them altogether. And that's what Maine Representative Doug Thomas fears will happen in his state. Thomas was the major opponent to Seth Barry's bill, and until it passed... He sold outdoor wood boilers. I really don't want to sell them anymore because the way these regulations that that Maine is writing 
are it's going to be complaint-driven enforcement. And so I might sell someone a, a six or $8,000 wood boiler that they've got another four or $5,000 in installing and then they can't use. I don't want to do that to people. I'm not going to do it to people. The federal government has been slow to respond to the wood boiler issue. 20 years ago, the U.S. EPA began regulating indoor wood stoves, setting strict emission standards for them. And in fact, Beth Thomas, who had to move because she lived near a polluting outdoor wood boiler, has one of the new indoor stoves right in the living room of her home. But she's in the minority. Despite federal regulations, 90% of the estimated 10 million indoor wood stoves in the U.S. failed to meet emission requirements. The clean ones just haven't caught on. That's why Greg Green from the EPA's Office of Air Quality and Standards hopes to speed things up with boilers. Instead of requiring new cleaner burning wood boilers, the EPA is setting voluntary guidelines. You know, many times our regulatory programs, by the time we go through the rule writing uh, process and, and actually implement uh, those rules, you're talking about a four or five year time period. Uh, but with the problems that we were seeing with these stoves, uh, with a voluntary program, uh, we realized that we can more than cut that time in half and start getting some of these emission reductions in, in a one or two year time period. So that's what we went with. In January, the EPA's new guidelines for outdoor wood boilers went into effect and manufacturers have started making cleaner-burning wood boilers. Rodney Tollefson is vice president of Central Boiler. It's the nation's largest manufacturer. He says their new models cut emissions by as much as 90% over the old ones. We actually have people that have installed them, and in one case we know of the neighbor questioned this guy, when are you going to get that thing up and running? And the furnace had been running for almost a week, and they didn't even know it was operating. The new cleaner-burning wood boilers are considerably more expensive, and they haven't been proven in the marketplace or backyards. But Maine State Representative Doug Thomas isn't giving up on wood boilers. The technology has its place. It's not for urban areas. It's not for built-up areas, residential areas. It's for rural people who have land and have access to, to wood that would otherwise be going to waste. And it's a great alternative source of heat for the right people in the right place. Back in Brunswick, Maine, Roland Morin has finished loading logs into his outdoor wood boiler. It warms the home where he, Dorina, and their 10 kids lived through many a long, cold Maine winter. In the living room, Roland relaxes by putting a scroll on their old player piano. It's a scene of a time gone by, in a place where the white pines still grow incredibly high. But these days, the neighbors live closer than they used to. And yet, in many ways, they're more distant. Our story about outdoor wood boilers was produced with the help of Kathleen O'Neill.
You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Just ahead, remembering one of the sci-fi giants of the 20th century, a writer who predicted much and imagined more and saw many of his technological dreams become reality. Arthur C. Clarke. Growing up in the 1920s and 30s, I never expected to see so much happen in the span of a few decades. Coming up, Arthur Clarke's Flights of Fantasy, Fact and Fiction. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, the health dangers of inequality. But first, this note on emerging science from Alexandra Gutierrez. Female Topi antelope don't like playing hard to get. They're not into prolonged courtship rituals, and they don't really like monogamy either. In the battle of the sexes, these antelope essentially reverse the rules of engagement. The standard assumption in sexual selection theory is that a male will aggressively pursue a female. But Finnish scientists observe that topi behavior goes counter to that assumption. Researchers have noticed that female topis persistently, and sometimes violently, attempt to attract the best mate. Because these females are only fertile for one day, they do not have the luxury of waiting for the best male to choose them, say the scientists. They must instead compete for the attention of the strongest males in order to improve their chances of getting pregnant. The fact that the male's sperm supply is limited further puts pressure on the females to find one good partner, or sometimes even a few. While it could be argued that the topi males are in an enviable position, being such an object of desire can be tiring and even dangerous. Males will sometimes collapse from exhaustion as a result of this attention, and they must occasionally fight off females who can be a bit too domineering. So it seems that in the topi world, love can hurt. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Alexandra Gutierrez. Water, water everywhere we wish. Today, more than a billion people, one in five, lack a source of safe drinking water. And each day, nearly 4,000 kids die because of it. Well, March 22nd is World Water Day, something the United Nations has been organizing for the past 15 years. And it was three years ago on World Water Day that the U.N. launched the International Decade for Action, Water for Life, setting ambitious goals to bring safe water to those without. Paul Faith is executive director of the Global Water Challenge, a coalition of water and hygiene experts. Mr. Faith, welcome to Living on Earth. Pleased to be with you today. Mr. Faith, what specifically are those goals? The goal is to get, for every country in the world, 75% of the people with access to safe drinking water. And how well have we done to meet that goal? 
Well, pretty well overall. It depends on where you're at. In Asia, for example, um, in places like India, in 1990, 71% of the people had coverage, and now it's 84%. But in Africa, it's 58% now, up from 48%. So there's definitely been progress. And since they declared World Water Day in 1992, additional 1 billion people have gotten access to clean and safe drinking water. You were talking about Africa. You've done a lot of work in Africa, am I right? Yes, we have. We have a clip of tape. I want you to listen to this. It's from someone your organization worked with there. Angelina Lan. When they are in their monthly periods, they don't come to school at all because of lack of proper sanitation and lack of water, and they just drop out. That's a bit hard to hear, but what she's saying is that these girls are having their monthly periods and they drop out because of lack of water. What's the connection? Well, girls like to have privacy in a, uh, a safe place to use the bathroom uh, when they're having their periods. So what typically happens is that girls stay home for that one week out of the month. They drop behind in their classes, and after a while, they simply drop out of school. So what did your organization, Global Water Challenge, do about uh, Angelina's school in Kenya? Well, the uh, GWC, in partnership with uh, a, a number of other groups such as CARE, developed a well put in latrines and brought in a hygiene program to, for kids to learn how to wash their hands and to keep themselves healthy. I actually got a chance to visit the school that Angelina's at and to see the kids. And she is the headmistress of this school, but she was headmistress of another school that was not far away for 18 years that didn't have access to water and sanitation and a hygiene program. And the kids there were sick and the girls missed school and uh, when she went across the street, basically, to this new school, which, which now had a, a water and sanitation program, what she saw was a couple of interesting things, where typically there are many more boys in school than girls. In this school, 52% of the kids are girls and 48% are boys. What they saw when they put the program in, uh, they had about 1,000 kids in this school, and the absentee rate was about 10 to 12% a month, largely due to diseases caused by dirty water. And after about five months of putting in the program, the absentee rate went down to 1%. Attendance went up, academic achievement went up, and Angeline reports that the kids are easier to teach, and it's basically been a huge success story for that particular school. Would it be safe to say that breakthroughs in providing water, sanitation, and hygiene have saved more lives than other medical breakthroughs put together? Well, uh, according to a study that I saw that came out about six months ago, a group of scientists said that in the last 150 years, the greatest medical advance that we have seen is the advancement and application of sanitation. Getting clean water people is thought to be the easiest way to improve health and economic prosperity in the developing world. Paul Faith is executive director of the Global Water Challenge. Well, Mr. Faith, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm glad to be on the show. Happy World Water Day. Thank you. Same to you. They say in real estate, the three most important things are location, location, and location. Well, the same can be said for life expectancy. Where you live can determine how long you live. America ranks 30th among the nations of the world in life expectancy. On average, we die younger than Jordanians, Slovenians, or Portuguese. And if you're a member of a minority, the situation is worse. You're less likely to reach age 65 than someone in Bangladesh. 
For the next month, a special PBS TV series will explore what it is about the American experience that's so deadly to the poor and minorities. It's called Unnatural Causes, Is Inequality Making Us Sick? The first show, In Sickness and in Wealth, examines the hierarchy and health outcomes in a hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. Llewellyn Smith is co-executive producer of the series. If you imagine a ladder with the wealthiest individuals or wealthiest families at the top and the, the poorest families at the bottom, but also imagine that there are different people all along the rung of that ladder. Where you live on that ladder is a powerful predictor of what your health is going to be and how long you're going to live. It's more powerful than the personal behavioral choices that you can identify because the research even shows that if you have two smokers and one is uh, an upper-class uh, wealthier smoker and one is a poorer smoker, there's a greater chance that the poorer smoker is going to have uh, diseases associated with uh, cancer and so on than the wealthy smoker. One of the reasons we wanted to do that in the hospital was to just to get people to sort of see the hospital not as this source for health, but as just any other place. People work in the hospital. There's a hierarchy in the hospital, which tends to reflect the hierarchy in society. And you're right. People at the top are the gentleman at the top who's the CEO, is, is in much better health and has much more control over his life than people who are beneath him. And it's graded, as you said. So people who are in the middle are going to have better opportunities than people who are in the next step below them. We're fortunate that the choices we have may be greater than people who have less means than we do. Let's listen to the CEO. I have a neighborhood where I can be outside and know that I'm safe and that I can exercise and walk. And I know that not every neighborhood in this country or in this city, um, that's true. So it's not just about the choices, it seems, that are open to the CEO, but the fact that he has control. That's right. He has control over his life. He's in a place where he can make good choices for himself and for his family. In some of the interviews we did, interviews we did with people who were uh, impoverished, including you know M Mary Turner, she understood what she needed to do to be healthy and what it was it what was important to safeguard her family's health. But could she make those choices? Could she actually buy the food? Could she actually afford to make the choices? And the answer was no. And she knew that. Of course we're dying, you know, <laughs> versus 80 in the eastern section of the county, you know, because those people are more affluent. And they have things open to them. You have to eat what fits your budget. So when you get these, the family size, and they're $1.99, and you can feed four people with it, you know, versus maybe four with $4. I mean, what's your choice is going to be, you know, especially when you're on a... $200 budget for food. So lack of choices, lack of control, and tremendous amount of stress. That's right. One of the things we talk about in the film is the impact that stress has on the body and especially unrelieved stress, what, what, what epidemiologists call chronic stress, has on the body. You have uh, greater chances of heart disease, greater chances of uh, diabetes and other kinds of problems. I had a heart attack several years ago. I was mild, but it was still hard to have thyroid problems, you know, and arthritis, you know, a little bit of everything. You cite a study of monkeys where you show there's a physiological effect of stress and hierarchy, and that the monkeys that are on the lowest ladders, lowest rungs in their society, have the poorest health. You actually have a cross-section of their arteries and showing how the ones with least power have the most clogged arteries. So it has a physiological effect. Absolutely, yeah. 
Carol Shively is the, is the scholar, who is a researcher who's working with, with, with primates, and one of the things she talks about is a, is a metabolic disturbance or a metabolic syndrome. And this is largely the function, the, the effect that uh, increased cortisol has on the body. And cortisol is the stress hormone. Cortisol is a stress hormone that we all have, the, and, and it's uh, usually higher in the day, and then later in the evening it sort of drops off. But if you're under stress continually, it doesn't drop off. And we see these in the uh, primates that she's studying, and we can see this in human beings as well. One of the most compelling pieces of video in, in this series is where you have um, a black attorney, a woman, and she's explaining how, how sh the stress of her everyday life affects her. So nobody, when I walk in the store, nobody says, oh, that's Kim Anderson, an African-American female lawyer, went to Columbia. They just see a black woman. I was in a store once. Just walking around thinking I was going to buy a pair of jeans. This clerk's following me around. So I said, why are you following me around? I'm not going to steal anything. Leave me alone. I am not going to take something. When you're confronted with racism, that covert racism, your stomach just gets, like, so tight. You can feel it almost moving through your body, almost. You can feel it going into your bloodstream. The point there is not so much whether something happens and it's an occurrence of racism, but do you have to be on guard? If you're continually on guard about whether something, there's going to be some sort of a racist threat or racist attack, well, obviously that's stress. Obviously your cortisol is up. One of the things that also that we talk about in, this, in the film is that uh, within this socioeconomic uh, ladder where you have better health at the top and as you go down, um, health outcomes become worse and worse. If you're an African-American, wherever you are on that ladder, your health is going to be worse than your white counterpart. Even if I am wealthy as an African-American, I'm still not going to have as long a life or as good health as someone who's uh, white and making the same good money that I'm making. It seems to me that that you're not just trying to raise these points. You're trying to, I don't know, maybe create a discussion, a dialogue? We wanted to do two things. One is to communicate some of these ideas about the impact of how we organize and shape our society and how that has a tremendous impact on the health of, of, of the people who live in the, in the United States. And then number two, as you said, we wanted to use these stories and present this data to the public in a way that really gets not just the ordinary people, ordinary viewers to rethink this, but also people who are legislators, people who are connected to policymaking, to rethink what health is and how do we create optimal environments and optimal opportunities for people to have better health. And do we really want to accept, again, a structure where the best health is reserved for the people with the most wealth? Well, Lou, I want to thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Llewellyn Smith is co-executive producer, along with Larry Edelman, of the new PBS series Unnatural Causes, Is Inequality Making Us Sick? It debuts March 27th. Check your local listings for time and channel. Arthur Clarke was born in 1917 in the English seaside town of Minehead, a full two years before a landmark paper was published demonstrating that space travel was physically possible. As a young boy, Clarke fashioned a telescope out of a cardboard tube and a couple of lenses, which he focused on the distant heavens. 
And he'd spend a few pence on the American sci-fi pulp magazine, Astounding Stories of Super Science, where years later he published his first science fiction story. Over his prolific career, he authored more than a hundred books and countless short stories about advanced science and the human condition. He wrote, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And Arthur Clarke was most certainly a masterful magician, weaving stories of far-flung frontiers and near-distant futures. He foresaw high-orbiting telecom satellites decades before they rocketed into space. Today, astronomers call their place 22,000 miles above the Earth a clock orbit. In my time, I've been very fortunate to have seen many of my dreams come true. Of course, not all of Arthur Clarke's predictions, dreams, and imaginings came true. He boldly anticipated atomic-powered rockets and cold fusion with the same certainty as geosynchronous satellites. And another one of his favorite predictions has yet to be realized, the space elevator tethering orbiting satellites to Earth. Uh, I always ask, why do I think the space elevator will be built? And I always say about... Ten years after everyone stops laughing, maybe 20 years, but I'm pretty sure that the space elevator is an important element in future space travel. Arthur Clarke often had the last laugh. He was optimistic about science, if not humanity. In his book, The Hazards of Prophecy, The Failure of Imagination, Sir Arthur laid out his so-called Clarke laws. The first... When a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. On March 19th, Arthur Clarke died, as he would say, marking his 90th orbit of the sun. On the very day he died, astronomers discovered the first inklings of life beyond our solar system. Using the orbiting Hubble telescope, they detected the organic molecule methane and water in the atmosphere of a distant planet. We suspect Sir Arthur Charles Clarke would have been delighted. On the next Living on Earth, ferns usually play second fiddle in gardens, but in the nation's premier place for native plants, they take center stage. You know, you think that maybe in the Pacific Northwest where it rains all the time, they'd have a lot of ferns, but we have more ferns than just about anywhere else here. And it's a confluence of geology and climate and that sort of thing that really gives rise to this fern diversity that we have. On the trail of ferns and mosses coming up next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley O'Hearn, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler, Sarah Calkins, and Alexandra Gutierrez. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rossano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. The recording of Arthur Clarke came to us courtesy of Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum, the magazine of technology insiders. You can find this at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.